All right, well, you open up this passage this morning and you're immediately hit with a problem, aren't you? Uh, I imagine you noticed it as the reading happened. Um, The first 11 verses, the story of the woman caught in adultery probably wasn't in John's original. It was probably added later. So if you've got the NIVs that uh, we hand out at the door, here's what it says. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. Confused? Uh, let me uh, chat a bit about what that means. You see, historians don't expect to find original copies of historical documents, especially paper ones. They just don't tend to survive. Um, so no one has the original copy of John's Gospel. Until a couple of centuries ago, most of the copies we had of John's Gospel um, dated back to the medieval period. That's why I've got this sort of fancy-looking paper up there. But then what happened was we had the Enlightenment and people got really excited about chasing down the, the source material. And so people looked and they found them. Uh, most of the time, what they found was exactly the same as the copies that we had, which were from later. But the story of this woman was different. In most of the documents that were back from that time period, it just wasn't there. In fact, even documents written by early Christian leaders, they would quote sections of the Bible, right? But if they were quoting the, the latter part of John 8, they, sorry, John 7, they would finish at verse 52 and the next verse they would quote would be chapter 8, verse 12. They'd sort of skip over this story. Not until like AD 400 did you start to have this story being included in some of those early documents. And so all the evidence suggests the story of this woman was added later to John. I have to ask, how does that make you feel? I don't understand if it sort of was concerning, but I want to suggest to you this is actually really encouraging news. I reckon it should have, when we understand what's going on here, it should make us confident that we can read the Bible and know that we're reading the original text. Uh, Just let me take you through it. First of all, this shows how carefully people study the text of the Bible. Um, Historians compare thousands of historical documents reaching back to the second and third centuries, making sure that our Bibles are as close as possible to the original. Uh, Just to give you a comparison, uh, Julius Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars. Um, It was written before the Bible, uh, the New Testament was. Now, the top half of that picture represents what we have for Caesar's Gallic Wars. There are today 10 manuscripts, 10 manuscripts available from that early period uh, recording what Caesar wrote. Now, those 10 manuscripts weren't They're actually from 900 AD. They're a thousand years after the original was written, okay? And yet historians are really confident about what the Gallic Wars said. That's enough evidence in historical studies to establish the original text. The bottom half of the picture is what we have of the Bible. We have more than 5,700 sections of the original New Testament that we can go back and look at and compare. And the earliest copies we have of those date to within the first century. That's very close. You know, that's the sort of 
30, 40 years after the original was written, and we have found, you know, over the years, we've discovered early manuscript evidence. That means you can be very confident that the Bible you read today is the same as what was written back in the first century. But also, I want to draw your attention to something else. I want you to notice how few of these sections are in our Bibles, okay? So if you open up your Bible there, John chapter 8 has that chunk that there's a note on. There's only one other place in the New Testament where you find a big chunk like that, noted as probably not in the original, and that's in Mark Mark 16. So if you go to Mark 16, you'll find a similar chunk. You do find, as you go along, there are little footnotes. So even if you've just got uh, John 8 there, if you look down to verse 39, you'll notice there is a footnote there. It, uh, it says that, look, it's possible that instead of the, um, the leaders saying that, the, that they were from Abraham's, they were Abraham's children, that might have been the Jesus' words. That's the difference, okay? Not a big deal, and certainly nothing that changes the message of that passage. And so if you go through your Bible and you realise that, that they're the big changes, they're the big issues that people are debating over, that means that there's huge chunks of the Bible that there's no difference, that, that we have very conf- great confidence that this is the original text and those little footnotes, barely any of them make any difference to the meaning of the text. So be encouraged. You can trust your Bible. Read it and know that it's historically re- reliable. Fair enough? There's only one problem we've got left and that's what I'm going to preach today. So, so you know, should I preach the first 10, 11 verses if they weren't in the original Bible. And I have friends who wouldn't do that and I totally understand why they wouldn't. But here's, here's my take. Somebody was reading John chapter 7 and 8 and they thought, this is the perfect story to put here. And I think, therefore, if we re- look at this passage and we understand what it's saying and we understand what the rest of John 8 is saying, it will help us to understand this passage, hopefully. We will be able to compare the two and see why it was that somebody thought this is the perfect story to tell at this moment because it emphasises, it reflects what Jesus is talking about at the Feast of Tabernacles. So how about I pray and we'll get into the passage and we're going to look at those two things. Uh, Father, thank you that we have so much evidence that the Bible is reliable. Thank you that we can be confident that what it says is what Jesus said. Because it is so reliable, help us to listen this morning. And help us to live what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So what is the story of the woman caught in adultery about? Well, it it does show us Jesus' forgiveness. It's a really vivid picture, isn't it? But before that, I actually think it shows us that we all sin. Let's start at verse 2. Jesus sits teaching in the temple, and the Jewish leaders bring this woman caught red-handed in adultery. Now, immediately that sounds dodgy. Because if she's been caught in adultery, where's the guy? Like, you can't be caught red-headed in that one and be a single party. And, and so something's going on, and it's quite obvious what's going on is that the leaders are bringing this woman not because they really care about her, but because they want to trap Jesus. Their real motive is to put Jesus against the law, which is really interesting that Jesus has this reputation of forgiveness that means they, they're expecting him to, to somehow go against what the law says. Have a look at verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. 
the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, at this point, you feel the suspense. We wait as Jesus bends down. We wonder what he writes in the sand. We watch the frustration build for these leaders. But when it comes, Jesus' response, it is simple and profound. He knows that no one is sinless. We all break God's law and we have no right to judge others let alone be their executioner. Verse 6. When Jesus bent down started to write on the ground with his finger, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We all sin. We all fail to be perfect the way God is perfect. And these accusers know it. We all experience it. The older you are, the more times you've failed, the more honest you have to be. We are not perfectly good people. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. There's only one person left standing with this woman. The one perfect person, Jesus. But what does he do? He doesn't condemn her to death. He offers her life, a new life. She sinned, but he calls her to sin no more. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It may not come from the original copy of John, but this is classic Jesus, isn't it? He exposes sin, he forgives sin, and yet he doesn't excuse sin. It's powerful. He exposes sin. He doesn't deny that God hates adultery. He calls it sin, but he also exposes the sin of these accusers. You know, they're, they're, they're utter hypocrites. They're not perfect. Then Jesus goes on to forgive sin. He offers this woman forgiveness, yet it's not permission to keep on sinning. She's forgiven so she can leave her sin. See, I just think this is so different to how our society handles sin, failing. Because I think we've got two extremes at play at the moment, and they're both at the, sort of the extreme end. So one option is that we downplay sin. Um, I reckon one of the the deep weaknesses in our political debates today is we don't care about sin, do we? Uh, We keep hearing about Bridget McKenzie and how she used the sports uh, funds in marginal seats before an election. And we're a bit upset, but we all know that if Labor was in, they probably would have done the same thing. And so we all get a bit ho-hum. It's what we expect. We we set our standards low for our politicians because just experience is telling us to set it low. So we have that response. On the other hand, we've got our cancel culture, haven't we? So if someone fails morally, they're just cut off. 
They're no longer allowed in the debate, no longer allowed to speak in society. They've got to give up their position and just leave. And there is no space for repentance and forgiveness. You, you can write something on a Facebook page 10 years ago, and if it turns up, well, you're condemned. And it's over. Jesus is different to that. What he does for this woman, he does in so many other places. He doesn't downplay sin, but he offers forgiveness and a new beginning. I, I, I talk with people, uh, uh, Christians, and one of the big struggles they often have is to believe that they are forgiven. We need this story. We need to hear this story. It's really powerful, isn't it? What I want us to see, though, is it's also the message that Jesus is preaching at this Feast of Tabernacles. See, uh, Jesus exposes sin, verse 12. Jesus declares himself the light of the world, light that uncovers darkness, uh, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the leaders don't like this. They asked Jesus for someone else to verify his claim. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, back in chapter 5, offered them three witnesses. He said, look, check out John the Baptist. You can check out the miracles I'm doing and you can go and check the scriptures, the law. It will tell you who I am. But here, Jesus doesn't point to those witnesses because the real problem is the leader's darkness. That's why they don't recognise Jesus. He's, he's from the light and they're in the dark. And if they're in the dark, then they can't judge Jesus. There's no point demanding witnesses. They're judging by the wrong standards. Listen to verse 14. Jesus answered, Even though I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In, in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. See, it's just like the woman caught in adultery. Jesus is different from everyone else. He is the only one from the Father, the only one with the right to judge. But notice it's not just about where he's come from, it's about where he's going. That's interesting, isn't it? He's going to the cross to die for sin. He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and only he can do it because only he is without sin. Verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? What Jesus does is he's driving this deep chasm between him and us. He's from heaven. We're from the world. We're condemned by sin. Only he can free us. Verse 23. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. Friends, what Jesus is saying here is really important. Without Jesus, we are dead 
men walking. So um, I love buying Jocelyn flowers. I, I think they just look great on the table. I know that she smiles a lot when I do it. But I have to be honest, I'm giving her dead plants. You know, from the moment they are cut from the, 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 that plant, they are doomed. They, are, they may look all the beauty in the world, but they are just in the process of dying and nothing can stop it. I can put all sorts of food into the water. I can do, do all the diligent keeping it and eventually it gets that mould around the stems and I just know I've got to release them and let them go. Uh, we have the same problem. We are condemned to die. We might have a lot of show in our life. It might look really pretty for big chunks of time. We might look really healthy when we're young. But because of sin, we are dead. We are doomed to die. Sin is like the brain tumour that erodes your judgment. It's not just that it's going to cause you to die, but it, it actually, it's the, what makes you blind to the problem. I think about those snakes and they, they bite their victim and the, the, they release some sort of toxin, but at the same time they, they release a, a sort of a very placebo, what do you call it, hallucinogenic drug. And so the animal has a really good time as they're being swallowed by the python. That's us. That's, that's Jesus' picture of, of sin here. It, it makes us blind to see who Jesus is and it condemns us to death. Which is why we need Jesus. We, we need him to expose our sin. Verse 25. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. Jesus condemns our sin. He speaks on behalf of God to make us see our sin, but he also forgives it. So next sentence, he recalls his conversation with Nicodemus back in chapter 3. See, lifting up could be the language of exaltation. It could be the language of being raised to God the Father. But in, Nicodem in chapter 3, it was the image of the snake in the desert being lifted up so that people could look to it and live. And that's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to go to the cross and die so that we can be forgiven. Verse 27. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. He does what pleases him. What does it please God? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. God's pleasure is to see Jesus rescue the world. Jesus exposes sin because he's from the Father, but he also forgives it. The one who is without sin, he doesn't condemn, he forgives. It's the message of the woman in adultery. It's the message of Jesus here. He is different from us. He is not like us. But, but why he could, when he could come in judgment, instead he invites us to forgiveness. Okay, so, so how do you respond to this passage? Two very simple things, and it's going to be very short. This passage is inviting us to feel the shame, to be honest about sin and its reality in our life. Um, we are all flowers in a vase waiting to die because we reject God 
we hear what he calls us to and we don't love his way of living. We, we, we choose to serve ourselves rather than the people around us. We are not the good people we should be. Feel the shame, but hear the forgiveness. Uh, Jesus is the person who has the right to condemn you to death, but instead he comes to offer forgiveness. Let's talk to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus came to show us the reality of sin in our lives. Thank you for the way he's so different, the, the way that he can stand there and talk to this woman who's done the wrong thing and he has every right to condemn her. And yet, Lord God, he chooses instead to forgive. Thank you that he came not in order to pronounce judgment, but to die on a cross for our sins. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would live trusting in him, that we would see our sin and we'd hear his invitation to be forgiven and then to go and abandon our sin, to live for you. Please do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to sing another song now. So